I'm Tom Kay, the founder of Finisterre. In 2003, I started a pioneering outdoor clothing brand, born from my love of the sea and a deep belief there's a better way of making product. Driven by sustainability and innovation, as well as building a great culture, it's pushed me harder than I ever imagined. We believe that by connecting people to the sea, we can inspire people to take action and protect it. You protect what you love. We build products to enable this connection, celebrating incredible stories of the sea and are constantly pushing the boundaries in all we do, come hell or high water. My name is Lawrence Stafford, and you're listening to Hell or High Water, a Finisterre podcast exploring the depths of our oceans and the resilience of the human spirit. Welcome back to the show. We've been a bit quiet on here the last few months as we found ourselves sidetracked with a couple of inspired projects, most notably our C7 Ocean Activist training camp back in June. This is our response to the G7 Summit, landing in our back garden just a few nautical miles down the coast. For those who didn't manage to catch it, all the content lives on over on our website, c7.finisterre.com, where you can hear from hero ocean activists, scientists, leading thinkers the world over as we look to put ocean and blue agendas front and centre of climate action. So go tune into all the on-demand workshops, webinars, downloadable toolkits and the like after this. In the meantime, this next episode comes from The Vault, uh, recorded a couple of months back as I caught up with the fascinating and multifaceted Charles Post. Charles is an ecologist, a filmmaker, explorer and lifelong surfer based out of Montana in the US. I've had some great back and forth with Charles over the years, more often than not surf-related, uh, or simply shared interest in one another's work and had him penciled in since day one to join us on the show. Uh, knowing the breadth and variety of Charles's work, it's extremely easy to go off on a tangent or quite literally down a rabbit hole. I spent the first 20 minutes speaking solely about eagles, wolves and roaming elk. So skipping ahead, we discussed everything from 30 by 30 biodiversity initiatives, growing up surfing in California, hiking in nature with NFL running backs and inner city kids, to decomposing seal heads and sparking curiosity for conservation early on. Charles is an all around great guy, absolute pleasure to talk with. Uh, so without further ado, here's episode four with Charles Post. The currency of conservation is passion. You occupy a very exciting space between your ecological background and then the creative world of filmmaking. One thing I've gotten from your, from your films in particular, is, is, uh, particularly where you feature in them yourself, is the energy and enthusiasm and your exciting approach to ecology, you know, and the, the passion of a naturalist, right? You know, something in very incredibly important in today's conservation efforts you know, where we have to appeal to the masses and, you know, ecology as far as I might be aware or others might be aware is, you know, could be deemed a pretty old school topic or you don't know. What I get from your films is this palpable excitement that you have for nature, for ecology, for conservation, which, in, in you know, plenty of other things you don't see. You don't see that, that do you? And um, I really get that sense of um, excitement and a lot of it comes from you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. It's it's something that it's what I it's kind of what I live for. You know, those moments when you get a window into the into the natural world doing its thing. You know, and it's mm -hmm. it's um, 
it's so special. And I think in those moments, you realize that most people will never have those experiences. So when you're able to capture it, how can you also weave in that contagious enthusiasm and that, and that, that, um, that excitement, right? I mean, Steve Irwin was, was who I watched as a kid. And I remember just being little, like turning the TV on and just like being so stoked watching him be so stoked about whatever it was, whether he was like pulling a wallaby out of a, you know, out of a bushfire or, you know, a snake out of a hole in a tree. And I guess I realized how important that delivery was when I was teaching as a graduate student, I taught field biology to undergrads for two years. And so I was kind of, you know, on under the spotlight, like how do you, get kids, many of whom were pre-med, you know, not on a ecology track, not on a field biology track. This was just a course they had to take and they opted for the field course because there was, you know, an outdoor element. So they were interested, but not like fully invested. Like they, this wasn't their career choice uh, or their dream career path, at least when they started. And so it was really, it was, it was such an amazing experience to have to think like, how do I get kids from all over the world to think mycelium is so cool or to think this varied thrush that's migrated thousands of miles to be here now this winter is like how do you capture that in in a you know an, an hour or two hour half day experience and so when i was able when it clicked and i would see somebody kind of have that that like aha moment of like oh my gosh this is unreal i had no idea that rough skin newts migrate in the winter and you can find hundreds of them moving through the forest after a rain. Um, and so I think when I got that taste, when I, when I could really see the, the light bulbs turn on and, and that kind of like passion and that interest culti be cultivated, then when I started mo moving into the film space, you know, I just knew it. I was like, we have to figure out a way to make science not dusty, not, you know, covered in a, in a boring lab coat yeah. up in the ivory tower. And we got to make it feel inviting. Um, and so that's what I try to do. Um, but it's genuine. Like I, gosh, I wish you could look through my Rachel's phone. Like she has so many pictures of me just like losing my mind watching something that most people are like, wait, what? You, why is that? Like what's happening here? <laughs> like Charles is freaking out and there's this like little bird on a branch, Yeah, but it's real. <laughs> so I think you got to show people that it's it's something you can like be stoked on. Yeah, I think um, your your love for birds actually is uh, mimics that of our founder here at Finisterre, Tom Kay's love for birds and migratory birds and seabirds in particular. Um, if I was only a couple of weeks ago, he set set about a challenge for the whole of the business: first people to spot the swallows arriving in the UK um, won a prize, and uh, yeah, all of a sudden everyone became avid bird watchers. Um, but yeah, and actually what you, what you said, I, that, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. What you said there and, um, the resilience of nature, you know, so this, this resilience of nature theme is it's a lot of the things we've communicated over the last year and content and storytelling, but then it's, you know, it's literally the, the print on our clothing at the moment, you know, you take a step back and how nature can, you know, thrive. Well, I, gosh, I, I must say, I, I am so inspired by you know what you what you stand for as a brand and what you've been able to pull off i mean the collection with the history museum is so cool um and i think really what it speaks to you know from my perspective is 
is this idea that once we can make, a, once we can give people a a way or an invitation to to make a connection with nature, right? To to have a relationship with the swallow or whatever the bird is or the the, or, the organism is on the shirt, right? In that moment, there it becomes something more. It's something they have a name for. And once you start putting a name on something, maybe it's the bird on your bird feeder or the first swallow you saw, or, you know, like the founder, I grew up surfing and being surrounded by seabirds. So I, I immediately had, there was a relationship and I, and I feel like from those relationships, then we start to develop compassion or some secondary or tertiary feeling that might, might provoke action. It might, it might change the way that you manage your your garden outside and maybe you're converting some of your lawn to a pollinator habitat or maybe you're volunteering at the local you know beach cleanup whatever it is i think that's kind of like the door that needs to be opened for people and brands are doing it you know sparking that 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 next step in people by you know kind of showing them the way or getting them excited about a topic or or a place or an ecosystem but ultimately you know thinking about half earth ultimately that's what we need we need people to feel like there's a relationship that they they want to defend and that they want to speak up for because we can't expect somebody who has no connection with swallows for example to read a headline in the paper that that highlights the decline of migratory songbirds and and feel anything and feel compelled to you know spend an hour of their week to you know write a letter to their elected official or to support a brand that has environmentally and socially conscious, you know, efforts woven into their, their, their work and their way of, their way of existing. Um, and so I think it's just that, like you said, it's that, that first little like switch, that first lever, um, I, I think is really has the potential to, to change, change the way that we engage with nature and, and give them an inch so they can take a mile because, you know, we're, we're finding with, with, um, Yellowstone uh, with many, you know, uh, fisheries. If you just let nature do its thing for for a little bit and let them kind of like get back on their feet, there's a lot of really resilient organisms out there that that will that can come back. Uh, I mean, the storks. I've never seen them, but just the fact that storks nest on roofs in Central Europe, you know, I mean, it's not ideal. Uh, or oyster catchers, you know, making their nests on gravel roofs in the Netherlands. It's not ideal, but like there, some of these animals are, you know, can, can work with us if we, if we give them a chance. That's, um, I think, I I can't remember where I, where I read it. It might be, there might be in your words, but it was, um, the lovely word actually, biophilia. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, well, tell, tell us a bit about biophilia, I guess. Yeah. So biophilia was coined by actually the author of the half earth. Um, book that you just shared, E.O. Wilson. He's a, I believe he's a professor emeritus, but he's a professor, no doubt, at Harvard. He's he's probably the the most, I would argue, he's the most famous living uh, biologist. Um, he really kind of hit the world by storm uh, following his luminary work on ants and the, and the social uh, complexities and dynamics of ant community or. Uh, ant populations and so he's he's become this really prolific writer i think he's written 20 books in his life he's in his later years but 
um, biophilia is a word he coined and it speaks to this innate connection that we humans have with nature. Um, and, and it kind of touches on this notion that it wasn't long ago that we were hunters and gatherers, no, no matter where you're from on earth, you know, our great, 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 uh, you know, uh, ancestors were out there acutely aware of nature. And so it's part of us. It's part of our, 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 our cellular composition. We are um, connected with nature, whether we, we remember it or not. And I think that there's been some interesting, something I actually wrote about yesterday or maybe the day before is, you know, forest bathing. And there's been some work done by uh, many scientists around the world, but especially in Japan, looking at the, the physiological effects of being in nature. And they have found you know, a, a, a slew of, of benefits um, from reduced heart pressure or blood pressure rather, um, uh, reduced anxiety, uh, more energy, increased immune, immune um, you know, heightened immune system. And, you know, and the list goes on. It all boils back to like, we are best when we are in nature. And so biophilia just speaks to that. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. So when, when did you first discover a, a passion for the outdoors, the great outdoors. But then when was that first kind of inkling towards ecology as well? You know, I, I, I grew up, like I, like I shared earlier, I, I grew up in a house uh, where nature was really, was really valued. And, and, and just over our back fence um, in my childhood home, there was, a, there was a creek. And this creek, just before I was born, they converted a few hundred meters of the creek uh, to a storm drain. Right. The town I grew up in used to flood quite a bit. It's like right at the foot of a of a of a mountain with you know redwood forest and oak trees. Um kind of that classic temperate rainforest um you know kind of setting. And so the salmon used to have this wonderful natural habitat, right? And they could move upstream and, and spawn and do their do their thing. Um but like I said, you know, they they converted the lower portion of the creek where I grew up into a storm drain. So there was a dam. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, in the fall, my dad and I and my brother would get in his car and would start raining in the fall and we'd drive around and go look for salmon. We'd go to all the different watersheds and go to places where we could watch them jumping up the waterfalls. And uh, on one occasion, I was just, you know, in the backyard and I looked over the fence. There was a chain link fence um, for, by the storm drain area. And there was a salmon just, you know, with its nose abutted to this dam. And I remember, you know, I was, I was young. I was, I don't know, 10 or 11. And I was so frustrated that they decided that the best use of this creek was to turn it into a cement tube. And the salmon was stuck. And I, I knew at the time, you know, I understood a little bit about their life history. I was like, this thing is, it needs to get upstream to complete this like epic journey, this incredible migration that's, you know, as old as time and so i climbed over the fence you know caught the salmon put it in the bucket my dad and brother and i walked it upstream and let it go and that just i think set me on this track of there need to be people who like think that's something that that's important um that we you know i i can only imagine how many people walked by and just didn't even couldn't didn't know what they were looking at or or didn't feel compelled to do something about it um so I kind of had that childhood moment and then, you know, many other things happened as a kid where I was, you know, kind of pushed further and further along that path. But I guess to answer your question in, in, in a more succinct way, 
my junior year of college, I took a course and was exposed to field work. Um, I saw pictures of graduate students in Alaska studying salmon, living in tents. You know, my professor was showing some work from her summer. And she, she, she's like, oh, and they're getting paid to do this. I remember sitting there in the audience going like, so they're getting paid to go to Alaska, hang out, and just basically do what I've always wanted to do my entire life, which is just like go out and look, you know, look at animals, uh, you know, and kind of like be a part of that ecosystem. And so I, I, right then and there, I was like, I need to be a field scientist. I mean, this is exactly what I need to be doing. Yeah. Eureka um, moment. Yeah, you know, and so that's that's kind of what I did after when I graduated. Wow, amazing, amazing. So, so what's what was your what's your history with surf? I have to I have to ask you about surfing just because I, I know when we've had a little back and forth, and I think you were in Ireland a few years ago. I was like, oh, you've got to go see some of the team, and um, yeah, and you've mentioned there your uh, you know you grew up surfing. I mean, even your language is is kind of typical of a surfer you've, you've already said gnarly <laughs> <laughs> and uh i think i think I'd, in watching one of your films actually um you'd woken up in the morning and you'd like fallen out the back of a van and it was just kind of stereotypical <laughs> of like surf surf bum living um yeah, yeah. What, what's what's your relationship with the sea and surf particularly particularly given that you're based in montana oh man well it's yeah i when i moved here i was i was uh before COVID, you know, I was able to go surf quite a bit, but yes, I grew up on the coast. I grew up, I mean, from that house with the salmon, you know, we were by car 15 minutes to the bay and maybe 20 minutes to the ocean. And then as I got older, I lived, you know, within sight of the ocean, walking distance to the ocean, um, grew up living with my grandparents on the East coast of the, of the United States on the water i mean literally like the salt marsh was our front yard um and so starting as a kid i i got my first well you know a boogie board when i was like tiny and then got a surfboard in middle school and pretty much surfed every day up until i moved here like four years ago um but yeah surfing was just always my thing it was it was I basically studied and did science and surfed and that was kind of it. Um, and surfing was always the thing for me where I could go surf for 30 minutes or an hour, even when I was neck deep in my graduate work or, you know, just w- whatever. I mean, you know, surfers know how it is. Like you can just go out and you just get wet, you like rinse off and that's just going to reset. Even if like the waves are garbage mm-hmm. or they're great, whatever it is, you just like put your suit on and you just like you're in the ocean and like things are cool. And so that was always my, yeah. that was just what I did. And no such thing as a bad surf. Yeah, no such thing as a bad surf. And I think. There yeah. definitely is. There definitely is such <laughs> thing as a bad surf. <laughs> well, I grew up surfing like the worst beach break in California. So like I am a, an expert at bad surf. Um, you know, we always got made fun of when the pros would come up and surf like our spots. Like, wow, this is like really heavy and like really bad. And I was like, yep, <laughs> we're all really good swimmers. Uh, but nobody's doing like an air, you know, like we're, we surf, like we grew up surfing, like big junky kind of like closeouts. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was always, that was what I did. And, you know, I consciously didn't go into marine biology because I, I didn't ever want to mix up that place that like oasis with work. So surfing was always an escape. I didn't want to oh, okay. like be at the beach or on the coast 
working, wishing I was surfing, you know? Um, so that was like a very conscious decision for me. Um, but being in the ocean, I think is one of the most amazing things about it is you're sitting on a surfboard, like floating through a really many times, um, thriving ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, we can all, all surfers can probably recall when seabirds are, you know, riding swells or, you know, oyster catchers are passing over your head or, you know, a whale comes by or a dolphin or a seal or whatever it might be. It, there's not many sports or activities out there where part, a big part of it is you're just literally like just floating, like no phone often. I mean, I had, we had hoods on, so we're not like talking to each other many times. I mean, that was, I think just such a formative thing for me. Just, you know, you're spending so many hours of your life, just like floating around in the ocean, looking at nature. You spend your time immersed in an environment like that. There, there comes a, in the natural instinct to to want to protect it um you know that you that's you know it better than most you feel that kind of um that stewardship or ownership if you will over a over a place and certainly you know stewardship follows that but um you know i wanted to i wanted to talk a little about bit about of course kind of conservation work and you know biodiversity and how we safeguard these places and you know the the, the future of planetary and land and sea and health and conservation and we, we i think you, you'll be familiar with and the you know 30 by 30 kind of plans to uh to protect land and sea and the you know various initiatives aren't there and you know, everything from the of the you know, nature conservancy and to greenpeace 30 by 30 global alliance 30 by 30 you know um i wonder if you could just go into that a little bit more in terms of your work yeah you know, so 30 by 30 is, it, it's really the answer. I think scientists and, and, and thought leaders around the world are identifying that as like the goal we need to shoot for. Um, you know, we have to, there's, there's many are saying there's not like an option. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about like how, how to make that more approachable. And, and one, a book that I recently um, read is, is a book by Doug Tallamy called Nature's Best Hope. And he's talking about um, the opportunity for us, for just people to convert our lawns to wildlife habitat. Even if you have like a 10 square meter patch of grass, rip it out and plant pollinator friendly flowers. And if we all did that, at, you know he's using data in the in in the U.S. But if we if everybody in the U.S. did that, it would be like the largest uh, landscape preservation effort in the country. I mean, it's like hundreds of millions of acres. Um, so that makes thirty by thirty a little bit more relatable, right? Where it's like, okay, we have a chance to like be a part of the solution. On a broader scale, thirty by thirty has been top of mind. Because like I said earlier, I, you know, I'm now spending a lot of time as like a brand consultant. So one of my clients and one of the projects I'm spending, you know, a, a majority of my time working on is, is for hip camp and hip camps, uh, think the Airbnb of camping, um, really cool, uh, you know, brand, really cool company doing wonderful things. And the project that we're doing, we're doing there, which actually is going to launch here in the coming weeks. And there's some really exciting news. I don't know if I can share this, but I will. Uh, I don't know when this will air, but uh, 
Fast Company has included our project as one of the world changing ideas for 2021. Um, Amazing. Wow. Yeah, and it's it's a project that that I developed with my partner there, and it 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 really keenly focuses on the 30 by 30 idea, and 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 through the lens of HipCamp, we basically, long story short, HipCamp is comprised by thousands of private landowners, right, who put their land up for availability, right? You can come camp on it. You can stay on it. And what we realized is like, wow, if we have a connection to thousands of private landowners across the US and Australia and soon, you know, abroad, what if we could incentivize them and support them in their stewardship journey, give them resources, connections to scientists and land trusts and to indigenous experts with deep knowledge of, of place and of, of, of nature and and how to coexist and, and 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 steward, and so that's been really exciting because we're actually plugging in hopefully with um, E.O. Wilson's Half Earth Project, which is which is housed at Yale University. Um, but so I'm like actively thinking about like how can we incentivize people, private citizens, to be a part of that 30 by 30 solution and to change. Or, or just support their efforts to leave the land better, to, to um, when they plant things to think about pollinators, when they put up fences to think about uh, wild, wildlife corridors and, and habitat connectivity, when they um, just make choices, right? Like every choice we make, even our diet, what we wear, companies we support, brands that we are like, stoked on, that all plays in the 30 by 30 because ultimately those decisions trickle down into an ecosystem, topsoil, habitat availability, or land use change, which is the greatest threat to biodiversity in the U.S. Um, those are driven by, by, in many cases, you know, consumerism, the, 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 the little choices we make a thousand times, you know, a week. And that's that, I guess that's that people minded approach as well to conservation and, you know, how it affects an economy. How do you build that into people's want and desire to make a change? You know, how do the livelihoods of people who live near nature, by nature, in the, you know, on the edge of a national park or in a city where they can have, you know, a beehive on their roof? Yeah, there's countless ways. I mean, even you mentioned there just like converting your lawns. Like, I think you can even, if you leave your, your garden, your lawn to grow longer, cut it less often, even that is more beneficial to, you know, pollinators or local nature right my garden's an absolute tip of long grass and 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 wild flowers and the neighbor's garden i look over the fence is you know very very manicured um so when my when my landlord tells me could you do your grass please i'd be like well no i'm, I'm actually doing a great thing here um <laughs> which which actually leads me to the next kind of thing i wanted to speak on and it was also your, your co-founder of um non-profit the nature the nature project incredible incredible project for what i've seen kind of creating those opportunities for kids and youth to experience nature firsthand and you've you've, you've involved so i've seen some stuff with the nhl there's some you've got some really really interesting kind of big high profile people involved in the in that that's um yeah tell us a little bit about the nature project oh gosh yeah no it's it's um i pinch myself sometimes because it all started with one of my best friends in high schools in high school he, you know, played football, ended up in the NFL, playing for the Seattle Seahawks. And 
um, I was in graduate school and, and, you know, had like, had no money basically. And I remember one day, I think it was spring break. He's like, Oh, you should come up and visit me in Seattle. You know, I just moved in with this guy, Marshawn Lynch. Uh, we have this big house. There's a guest house you can stay in. Like we can go hike or whatever. I have a little bit of time off. I guess it was like in between. I don't know anything about football, but it was like in between one of the breaks that they have. And I was like, okay, yeah, sweet. He's like, Oh yeah. I'll, you know, just, once you get here, we'll cover everything. Like, don't, you know, don't worry about it. And I was like, okay. So I like get my little like $1,800 Volvo and like, you know, putter up the coast with my surfboard and make my way up to Seattle. And, you know, we, the three of us went on a hike and um, we just started talking about, you know, Marshawn grew up in, in Oakland, um, not far from where I grew up, just the other side of the bay. Uh, but, you know, we were really reminded that like so many kids never, had the chance to go outside just didn't have the access didn't have this the it wasn't a, really an option for them and cooper my my co-founder was you know his first year in the nfl at the time and and he was you know the seahawks that football team the coach and, and this and the and the kind of the team at large were really keen on, on supporting players to to pursue um you know nonprofit opportunities to give back to the community that was like a huge uh, uh, you know, there, it was definitely incentivized and supported. And so Coop and I just were like, oh man, like, gosh, you know, I was teaching at the time in grad school. And I was like, you know, I've, I've been learning about teaching and seeing kind of firsthand kids getting really stoked about nature. Coop had this opportunity and these resources to, you know, access to, to, to resources that could, could bring this to life. So we started, we started off with just a foundation, right. Where we were like, we do fundraising events. We'd partner up with existing nonprofits and get kids, inner city kids out into nature. And it grew from there. And since then we've, you know, we've brought thousands of kids out into nature. We've worked with professional athletes across a number of NFL teams, major league soccer, major league baseball, um, you know, uh, NCAA athletes in the, in the college sports world um, from all walks of life, men and women, um, you know, kids from inner city Bay area, inner city Seattle, uh, Native American populations. Uh, we've supported some of their efforts. And it's just been like incredible to see a kid who's never been to the beach, go to the beach mm -hmm. or even to see an athlete. I mean, we've had NFL players who've never been hiking and you take them out into the woods and, and show them an Eagle. And it's this kind of like moment. Um, I'd like to think that Marshawn's had, you know, a great time getting into nature and maybe, ways that he hasn't before uh i've i've seen you know one of the one of the, the 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 bits of feedback that's just like even almost hard to recount uh emotionally you know it was there was this kid that we were we had interviewed and he was pretty shy and we you know we had him on camera and you know he just wasn't he didn't really i could tell he didn't really feel comfortable uh you know really opening up right like and we were just asking him questions about like, oh, what, how's your day going? What's it like being outside? Are you having a fun time? You know, kind of general questions. And he and I were in the golf cart with the, the camp counselor and, and his teacher in the front seat. And we're, you know, we're driving back to all the kids out in the, in the big lawn doing some, doing some of our activities. And he looked at me and he goes, he's like, you know what I really like about this is he, had, so he had emigrated from, um, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting where in Africa, but. He had been here for I think two years. And he said his favorite thing about it was he felt like he was safe and didn't wasn't worried about getting shot. Wow. And 
I that I was just like I it was so potent and I just felt so happy that he was having a good time and that he felt that way and and felt like he could you know have a have an experience that was really positive and, and safe um and so when I think about the nature project I I just I'm really grateful that we've been able to get the support we've had and have the experiences we've had I mean obviously COVID's made it hard to do things but we're looking into our fourth year and we're really excited about some of our partnerships, um, some of the opportunities we're cultivating. But yeah, it was, it was very much like an unintended project that started off on a hike and just kind of like a bit of a conversation. You know, now we have like really smart people who do this for a living, like helping us. And um, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm just, you know, trying my best to like be helpful. Yeah, uh, amazing initiative. And, you know, we, we've we've worked a, on a couple of things with inner city kids out of London and, you know, we, and but also know that just down the road from us, five miles from the coast, there are kids in schools who also haven't been to the beach. And that's just absolutely bonkers to think, you know, and it's um, so there's there's a huge thing in terms of access there. It sounds like the Nature Project are, and yourselves are doing something to address that and you know using using great people in the nfl and and to 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 achieve that and however organic that might be is is um yeah it's, that's 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 amazing really really cool yeah and one of the things that, that's been really powerful right is and, and i should have touched on this earlier is like the x factor is i don't have the connection with with an inner city kid because i haven't sh- i haven't i don't have that experience um we don't have those shared experiences you get an nfl player who comes from the neighborhood who knows that yeah what's what that experience is like can 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 get on their level and they have that instant relationship um that's the magic right you get somebody from their community getting them stoked about nature and then it's real yeah um so we just kind of sit back and let you know nature and the mentors and the kids do their thing and i think that's where that's where the um where the magic comes from amazing amazing um you mentioned quite a bit at the start and i know i know from my own awareness like yourself and, and rachel Paul, your, your wife you know your your worlds seem to kind of cross pollinate on your, your support for one another's endeavors is i can i can see quite visibly it's you know, it's, it's amazing to see you kind of each kind of like step each other up in terms of the work that you do and um i don't know if you want to kind of um say anything on that it's 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 been it's quite quite a cool journey to follow yeah you know it's i appreciate you bringing that up it's um i you know one of the greatest parts about just being being her husband her partner is through through covid you know her business we feel super fortunate has has done really well she's she's been really thriving but we've had to you know um let our our employees go because they usually work out of our house and it just wasn't um practical to have you know to have people work in our space and so we got to a point where rachel's an artist of course. she's an artist yep she's a fine artist she's a designer um mm-hmm. just incredibly talented i mean has done a lot a lot of things she's climbed denali she's you know i i swear she could be a pro skier if she decided she wanted to be she's an incredible athlete like bonkers um but yeah, really talented. Uh, sorry, well, athlete, really talented painter and designer. And so when COVID happened, you know, we were at this point where uh, she needed help. And I think my fa- one of my favorite kind of realizations has been this like shedding of my ego and, and realizing like, well, maybe my best use 
my best, you know, time well spent is just to, to not make a film this year and to pack her like package boxes or to help her with customer service or to help her with her VAT applications, you know, or her like duties applications for just paperwork. And while it's like super boring and not my passion, I feel so like proud to be able to support her. And it's fun. Like I've never been in a relationship like that. I've never been in a situation where I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do what I really love because I just love seeing her thrive. And like, that's a great use of my time and a great use of my energy. And ultimately that makes me really happy. Um, and she's the same way. She's constantly, I mean, gosh, I mean, any good relationship, right. There's like so many, you know, back and forth, give and take synergy going, but, um, it's been really fun just to, you know, we've been married for going on three years. Um, it's just been like an absolute treat. She's just such a nice person and she's so inspiring and just works so hard. Um, you know, and she proofreads all the stuff I'm writing. I'm working on a book or book proposal right now, actually, for like a, a proper book. And so she'll sit and I'll read to her for hours and she'll help me with, you know, grammar or whatever it is and, and just kind of be my my audience, um, my, my critic. Um, but yeah, we're both creatives. We both work for ourselves. Um, and I think we're both trying to make the world a better place, you know, through art for her, you know, the way that she sees it is that she hopes art is, is a, is a window into nature is a, is another kind of platform where mm -hmm. people can connect with wild places and cultivate a, a feeling towards them. Um, so while we do, we have different kind of outcomes with our work, right. Different products. Um, I think the, the intention and the approach is, is quite similar. So um, yeah, she's, She's, she's an easy person to like be proud of and to celebrate. So I feel, yeah, I feel like very lucky to be, to be that one. Oh, well, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, it's, um, it's very, it's very nice to watch you guys elevate each other and be, be one another's own kind of PR team as well. It's, uh, yeah, really cool to see. Really cool <laughs> yeah. to see. Um, yeah. Cause I, I, I think social media can be tough, mm -hmm. you know, for people, uh, for couples, I, I would imagine because it is such a, a me, me, me thing, sure. right? Like that's kind of, I think that's kind of like the, the dynamic. So yeah, we, I think we've been working on just trying to make it a little bit more about like us or just, or spend less time on Instagram because yeah. it's not, you know, obviously it's not everything. Yeah, balance, balance. Um, yeah, I've just, uh, yeah. I think what, and one of the things I, I kind of go back right to the start now was, I think I wanted to ask you, what, what was your first job in science ecology i'm really interested to know your kind of journey with it and one of the things you've mentioned <laughs> yeah um, that I've, I've read a couple of times you write the most you you do go back to instagram and social media is actually your yours is probably one of the only accounts and there's a couple of others i'll read the whole essay long bit of copy um there's a very lot there's a very lot <laughs> i think yeah, there's a couple of accounts where i'll read start to finish and yours is one of them because I find, I find them incredibly interesting and insightful. And um, one of the things <laughs> yeah. you mentioned quite a, lot, quite a lot is that kind of like finding your tribe. You referenced it quite a bit yeah. in, in, in your early work and, you know, coming out of grad school and out of Berkeley and into first jobs and, you know, actually finding your tribe, feeling an identity, right, and a real kind of uh, a drive. Um, and I think there's a lot of people in the kind of, particularly in the conservation space and in you know, people who are wanting to do good with their work and apply themselves in a positive way. 
often it's a case of not knowing where to go or not knowing if you belong or yeah you know my my proper first job in that space was in high school and it's a, it was pretty funny I, I worked for a marine mammal rehabilitation center that was actually at the beach i grew up surfing so it was quite convenient in that sense um but my first job was volunteering there and part of it was probably due to proximity to surfing um but i think another part of it was you know that i'd grown up surfing around marine mammals and i had seen on a number of occasions marine mammals wrapped up in fishing nets or dead on the beach or or healthy and fine doing their thing and so you know there's when there's like a rehab center basically at the beach i was and being a, a nature person i was curious and so i got this job volunteered there and the first thing i did was they gave me a bucket right like a five gallon bucket and there's a seal head in it a decomposing seal head that was like severed at the neck and it was in this bucket and the job, the job was to get the flesh off the head deconstruct it let it like clean it out with scalpels and, and power washers, pressure washers, and then paint it in Elmer's glue and then reassemble the seal head so it could be used in schools as an education piece. And I remember my mom, who's right, like, wow, someone's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. And, you know, as a, as a high school intern, I was like, whatever, you know, put on some coveralls and some gloves and goggles and just like get to work. So I did this and I, I didn't really think twice about it until one day my mom picked, uh, was picking me up from school or something or the beach maybe. And she, she's like, not one to like pass criticism. She's like a very sweet, sweet lady. And she just goes, you smell so bad. You literally smell like decaying marine mammal. And for anybody listening, who's like smelled a dead marine mammal. Like that's what I smelled like. And when you're trying to be social in high school and you reek of like dead seal, it really doesn't go well. Um, so anyway, that was like the moment. I think shortly after that first seal head, I like moved on um, and did some other volunteer things. But and that was my first job. And I think what was so fun about it was that I was, I was, I was like wanted, right? Like I was valued. And like my curiosity for the first time as a kid had been appreciated by adults I didn't know. These are people that like didn't mean, that I didn't mean anything to them besides I was just volunteer. And I remember them being like so supportive and like so stoked on how stoked I was. And if I had a question or, you know, we had like a, at one time we had a dolphin that was injured. And I just remember them seeing how excited I was and them bringing me in and showing me the dolphin and like having that experience where you're almost like a mentee, where you have somebody taking you under, them under, you know, you're under their wing. And I think then I was like, wow, there is a community of people who are really keen on connecting with young people like myself who are just genuinely passionate and interested and excited. And so that was the thing. And I, you know, I get emails constantly. Um, I'm talking to people on, 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 you know, video chats and phone calls and emails, like young people who, Hey, do you have any advice on where to look for a job? What's a good organization to work with? Um, you know, and one of the things that I constantly say is that when you meet those people with genuine interest and excitement, unbridled excitement, and you can just be yourself more often than not, like that you, they'll welcome welcome you with open arms i mean that's the kind of like that's the currency of conservation is passion like you will not meet a person who's working in the science field in the conservation field in the stewardship field who is not like stoked on the topic because they're not doing it to get rich mm -hmm. you know they're doing it because they're compelled and they're moved and they're like really keen on the issue so 
that kind of awareness, I think, has just kind of propelled me, right? I've just kind of like followed what makes me feel good and makes me feel happy, and and it happens to be mm -hmm. conservation and science. That's that's really interesting, and actually reminds me, I've got I've got a really close friend who I surf with, and his his younger brother at university was studying water vole habitats. I, ne I never understood it at the time. And then I remember like four years later, five years later, maybe seeing him. I was like, oh, what, what, what are you up to? And he's, you know, he was still studying water voles. And I was like, but he, he said it with even, even more enthusiasm <laughs> and even more excitement for what he was doing than he did five years prior. I was like, wow, like you, that's amazing. Okay, I, I get it now. I really get it now. Um, and, and actually you mentioned um, E.O. Wilson and his study of ants. And I think one of the closing statements of his book is, if I had another 60 years on this planet, I would dedicate my life again to another 60 years of studying ants in New Guinea. And I was like, wow, like, that's, it's amazing. It's, um, yeah, and you, you have it in buckets. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly look forward to um, keeping an eye and reading what you've got going on and hopefully in due time having been able to join you for a surf or have you over down in Cornwall with us. Oh my gosh, I would love that. And I mean, I think it's, I think one of the, the nice um, dovetails between surfers and scientists is the stoke, right? Like we all have that buddy who will just tell, call you and tell you how sick their session was, you know? And you're like, all right, all right. Like an hour later, like, I'm sure it was good. It was good. It was, it was head high and offshore. I get it, I get it. But like, that's the kind of enthusiasm that, that so many scientists have about ants. I mean, my lab mate studied mayfly and she was, is probably still to this day, like the most stoked mayfly entomologist there is, like hands down. I mean, she's a professor at University of Hokkaido now in Japan. And like, I challenge anybody listening to this, find me a mayfly enthusiast more stoked than her. <laughs> and I just think that stoke is so, um, it's kind of unique, right? Like we probably engage with other adults all the time and there's not that quickness that that liberal offering of stoke like it doesn't you don't have to be like so serious you know <laughs> like whatever it is and i feel like surfers and scientists in many cases like are, are very uh proud of their excitement mm -hmm. you know and, and I, I think that's a great thing yeah i think it's, it's it must be the underlying tone of that and it must be in all seriousness the, the nature element of it because mm -hmm. i can't imagine a scientist by comparison who works in a lab who is you know kind of more kind of biomolecular science or the do you know what i mean would have the same as someone you know in the field discovering mayfly kind of behavioral changes or you know it's um it's got to be something in terms of science i think that must be the nature connect right that that, that brings about that stoke yeah i think that's definitely part of it i mean there's certainly gosh i i'm writing about a friend right now who did his PhD in, in abstract algebra. He was pretty stoked on algebra. Um, you know, so I think there's definitely can be people who have like a deep, deep, crazy, unbridled stoke for things not nature bound, but I think nature certainly helps. Um, and I think, yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so that's a big part of it. And anyway, I think it's a, it's a nice, uh, yeah, I feel like it's just a natural bridge between, between surfers and, and, and ocean lovers and the science, the science realm. But, yeah, I would be so so stoked to get out to to Cornwall and surf. Um, I haven't surfed in the UK, but like I said, I've been reading a lot of James Rebanks stuff. So my mind is often, as I sit in my sauna in the evenings, it's often in you know 
the kind of um wilds of of the uk and it, it uh it's it sounds it reads beautifully so i can only imagine you know i've seen the photos like you guys have some sweet spots you guys are getting waves in. yeah we've got a, a pretty fruitful coastline being an island nation you just gotta know where to look and um yeah we'll make we'll make something happen certainly um i mean what, what's your nearest spot where you are then in montana you know, I think to the ocean, it's mm-hmm. Washington, like 10 hours. There's a few river waves, actually. So in a, gosh, maybe like two weeks time, you might uh, go. I was going to ask that. Yeah. Yeah. We might go surf this river wave uh, in Missoula, which is like two hours away. And I haven't there. I surfed a river wave a uh, year before last up in Canada. That was really cool on the St. Lawrence, just outside of Montreal. River waves are very different than ocean waves. Uh, I was horrible at it uh this is this stand standing river wave or tidal ball a uh, standing river wave okay yeah so it was just a, it was a bit of like an optical illusion to see the to see the bottom of the wave right because the water's so clear and everything's moving at you it's just a bit more of a back-footed thing not that i figured it out by any stretch of the imagination i mean i was up and riding after a little bit but you see some of those people like in germany or or here you know there's a good wave in bend mm-hmm. oregon which like Jerry Lopez surfs uh, quite a bit. Um, so yeah, I haven't. Oh, I've, yeah. I just finished the, uh, I just finished his surf is where you find it. And it, you, um, they were speaking about the, the early days of riding in the, uh, well, it was the kind of, um, it was the waterworks, wasn't it? It was all the runoff, the glacial kind of runoff from the mountains. Yeah. Um, and then how it used to get, used to get shut down too many people surfing it and, um, yeah, but then, yeah, like you say, you mentioned the Munich one there, the, the eyes back and, um, yeah, that thing is on the kind of tourist map. If you, if you're ever visiting Munich for Oktoberfest, yeah, swing, swing by the river. Have, have you surfed that wave? I've not. No, no. It looks, it, it, you know what? It, look, it looks way too localized <laughs> yeah. for me. Um, yeah. So I, I haven't been able to surf that much, but yeah, Washington's the closest I got a new board upstairs. So I'm pretty keen to get pretty keen to go. Right now it's like 15 degrees and blowing 40 miles an hour and kind of snowing. So it's not it's kind of that weird like liminal season. You you don't really want to ski cuz you just had the whole winter and it's definitely not summer yet. It's too muddy to bike. It's kind of almost too muddy to run, too snowy to get up high, you know, with shoes on. So I think a lot of the times we're just kind of like, okay, we're we go to the desert or out of the coast and kind of like wait wait until things dry out a little bit but hope, hoping to get a surfing for too long nice nice well i hope you do um okay well i might I might, wrap, might wrap things up there but um yeah cheers charles um yeah epic i think uh, there was you know what there was so so many other things i wanted to dive into and you know i've obviously i've obviously watched countless uh, sky migrations what a beautiful film and I thought I watched I watched it the other day and then I kid you not within 2 hours I'd read an article about some of the some of the eagles in in America who have are now well studies have found ridiculous amount of levels of of rat poison and uh, in yeah in 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 their, in their bloodstreams and it's just when you read these like you know watch a very very hopeful film like like Sky Migrations was and then literally 2 hours later read something as ridiculous as that um yeah kind of that the dips, the roller coaster ride of hope and dismay. Um, it's, uh, it's a yeah, one funny one, funny one to navigate sometimes. A, a quote that that I think anybody who's listening to this, um, who loves nature, will, will, will resonate with is, um, 
it was it was said by Aldo Leopold, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's something to the effect of, you know, one of the the um, one of the pains of an environmental education is that you live a life alone in a world of wounds. And I think that's probably the hardest part about being a um, an ecologist, being a compassionate, you know, person who loves nature, right? Is that we're exposed to these things, um, and then you you know you sit back and you ask yourself, well, why isn't everybody you know talking about this, or why isn't this a bigger deal, or why isn't this you know the headline, or or why aren't my friends concerned or family? Um, and so yeah, that's very real. You know, you read a bit of good news and then the, you dig in a little bit and you're like, oh man, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot to lot to work on. Yeah. But uh, maybe for another another conversation because I would yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Good. Okay. Oh, well, cheers. Thanks for taking the time. Well, you fr- you Friday morning now? Yeah, Friday morning, nearly noon. Just gonna I do a little bit of work and then I don't know. I'll be just chill. Nice. Good. Good. Well, yeah. Send send my send my best to Rachel. Um, yeah, really cool to connect with you. And well, it's it's been a treat, and I would I would uh, drop about anything to to reconnect. Um, so count me in whenever the there's an open spot and uh let's certainly keep in touch because yeah it'd be be really fun to to link up for a beer and a surf well i hope you all enjoyed that thanks for tuning in great to finally get this one out making for a timeless yet timely conversation about biodiversity and the value of a connection with nature both land and sea Find out more about Charles over on the website, finisterre.com forward slash hell or high water for all show notes, links to Charles's films and the great projects he's involved with. Thanks to Gareth over at Chatterbox Audio for helping put the show together. Sound designed by the great CJ Mirror. If you're listening via the usual podcast platforms, subscribe to be the first to know about future episodes. We'll see you next time.